Compass Media Networks. This is America's First News. This morning with your host, Gordon Deal. Scale it back. Good morning, I'm Gordon Deal, along with Jennifer Koshenka. On this Friday, December 15, glad you could be with us. Here's what we have for you this hour. The U.S. wants Israel to dial back military operations in Gaza, but it's not clear if National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is being heard. Also from overseas, Hungary has blocked the European Union from approving tens of billions of dollars in aid for Ukraine. Senate Democrats are delaying their holiday break to try to finalize a compromise on Ukraine funding and southern border security. And the intangibles that hiring managers look for during a job interview. From the beginning of our conversations about you potentially working here, all the way through the decision-making process, how have you behaved? How have you conducted yourself? What what actions and behaviors have you exhibited or not? Career expert Julie Bauke on skills desired besides coding, for example, and a firm handshake. European leaders have failed to reach agreement on a $54 billion aid package for Ukraine, a measure blocked by Hungary. The deal will be considered again in January. Pro-Ukrainian leaders in the the EU pressed the case for the billions in aid, which comes as the war in Ukraine stalemates on the front lines as winter sets in. From Washington, Pentagon spokesman Major General Pat Ryder. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we start to have to make decisions about our own readiness uh, and about our ability to continue to support Ukraine in the way they need to be supported on the battlefield. The EU announcement yesterday came hours after the group officially agreed to open membership talks with Ukraine. That development overcame further opposition from Hungary, whose leader, Prime Minister Viktor Orban, has been openly skeptical of support for Ukraine. Orban controversially met with Russian President Vladimir Putin two months ago. Some say approving membership talks send a strong message to Russia following concerns that the West had lost interest in supporting Kyiv. The U.S. is turning up the heat on Israel. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is pushing Israeli leaders to shift from a reliance on airstrikes and ground assaults in Gaza toward targeted military operations in its effort to root out Hamas terrorists. Mr. Sullivan met with Israeli political and military leaders yesterday. The Wall Street Journal says he seems to have made little headway addressing the growing rift between the U.S. and Israel over civilian casualties, the length of the conflict, and governing post-war Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. There's a difference between the deliberate and systematic uh, murder, maiming, and menacing of civilians which is what terrorism is, and the unintended consequences, uh, unintended uh, casualties that accompany any war. The U.S. reportedly wants Israel to switch to more precise tactics in a matter of weeks. Separately, officials in Germany say four men, allegedly part of a Hamas terror cell suspected of planning attacks against European Jewish institutions, have been arrested. With plenty of unfinished business, the House has adjourned for its Christmas recess with no plans to return until the new year. However, the Senate is delaying its holiday break and will return next week to hammer out a deal on immigration and aid to Ukraine and Israel. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that shift on the floor yesterday afternoon, one day after immigration negotiators expressed some signs of optimism in reaching a deal. Senate Republicans say an immigration deal is crucial 
for their support for passage of U.S. aid to Ukraine and Israel, which is a high priority for President Biden. South Carolina's Senator Lindsey Graham on Fox. He's the commander-in-chief, and here's what I believe. Without Republicans put pressure on him, he wouldn't do a damn thing to repair a broken border. Given the threat level, to me, that's just insane and irresponsible. Meanwhile, the House feels its work is done on the issue, having passed a measure earlier this year. But Democrats in the Senate say it's a non-starter. Hey everyone, it's Gordon Deal here to talk about some of the most fun you can have if you love sports, and that's with Prize Picks. Prize Picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America. You pick more than or less than on a handful of player projections and watch the winnings roll in. For example, mix and match football and basketball. Maybe your entry is Christian McCaffrey for more than 99 yards rushing and Jason Tatum for fewer than eight rebounds. If you know your stuff, you can turn 10 bucks into $250 with just a few taps. My friends and I love it. To get started and have your first deposit matched up to $100, go to prizepicks.com deal and use code deal. Also, if a player you pick gets injured and leaves the game, prize picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. Your player is rebooted prizepicks.com slash deal and use the code deal. That's prizepicks.com slash deal and the code deal. Again, prizepicks.com slash deal and code deal. Thanks for spending part of your Friday with us. Republicans are mostly shrugging off former President Trump's comments about being a dictator for a day if he wins re-election to a second term. Here's Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Brett, what are you hearing? Right, yeah, it seems like the reaction, especially from Republicans at this point, has mostly been, you know, borderline non-existent. It's been sort of a shrug and a laugh and and basically suggesting that these comments are meant to to sort of rile up the media, um, that Trump is sort of being tongue-in-cheek here, that he's he's leaning into this. And Republicans, most of whom at this point have kind of rallied behind Trump as as their their preference for the, the GOP nominee in 2024, a lot of Republicans have basically shrugged this off and said they're not really concerned about it. They think that this is being overblown by, by the press and by Democrats. And that they have few, if any, concerns that he's actually, you know, thinking about being a dictator, even if just for a day. Yeah. I mean, the two issues he highlighted obviously resonate with his base. And that's he was saying, if I'm if I'm going to be a dictator for a day, we're going to drill, drill, drill. And then um, he also said, build the wall. Right. So, so I you mean, know, how much could he do, you know, as, as, a, as a quote unquote dictator on those issues? Yeah. So, and I think that's, you know, he's given his, his defenders and his allies a way to sort of brush this off and say, you know, that he's talking about these issues specifically and that, you know, maybe he's suggesting he could take executive action on these issues. You know, he could take executive action to open up more, more space for drilling in the U S um, to loosen regulations so that there could be more drilling. Uh, maybe he takes executive action to allocate funds or resources to, to construct more wall along the border and essentially reverse actions taken by the Biden administration. So that's sort of what what uh, his allies are pointing to, to to suggest, you know, he's not talking about being a dictator, quote unquote. He's talking about using his unilateral power to to do these things, basically. We're speaking with Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. His story is called Why Trump's Dictator Remarks Are Working for Him. Uh, detractors are saying what at this point, Brett? Yeah. So, you know, Democrats and President Biden and and those folks are essentially saying, you know, take Trump at his word, uh, that there's no need to to read deeper into these comments or, or try to find a way around them about whether he's kidding. They're saying, you know, he's telling us that he he wants to, to be a dictator on day one if he's reelected. And 
you know, they've argued that essentially there's plenty of evidence uh, of what Trump might do if he's reelected that would sort of lean toward more authoritarian style, uh, whether it's his the way he talks about his political enemies and calling them vermin or talking about prosecuting uh, Biden and his family, talking about, uh, you know, expanding a travel ban if he's reelected. So, you know, the president's campaign, President Biden's campaign and and other Democrats have basically said, you know, Trump's not kidding here. We shouldn't we shouldn't try to justify these these words. He's he's basically telling us what it is that he wants to do. That was along the lines of uh, what Christi, uh, Chris Christie said at uh, that, that fourth debate, uh, which I think was the, the day the remarks came out or maybe the day after. What, what's been reaction like on the on the Republican presidential trail? Yeah. So to your point, yeah, Chris Christie, uh, the day after Trump's remarks to Hannity it was on the debate stage and he was basically the only candidate on that stage to directly address these comments. He himself kind of said Trump is a dictator, basically, uh, and that he would he would you know be an authoritarian as president. And Chris Christie has really leaned into this idea that he's the only candidate who's willing to directly take on Trump, directly criticize him, and call him out for the dangers of a possible second Trump term. Um, but the other folks, uh, two of whom are much closer to Trump in the polls than Christie is, and Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, neither of them really address this directly. Neither of them have have really shown much willingness to really take the fight to Trump other than a few barbs here and there. So, you know, it's just, it seems like it's going to be more of the same where Trump makes sort of a controversial comment. A lot of people kind of rally to his defense and, and we move on and there's little to no damage to him in the polls. And if anything, he just kind of cements his lead. Thanks, Brett. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. By the way, if you've missed anything, be sure to check out a podcast of today's show. It's available every day on the This Morning with Gordon Deal app, plus Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. 20 minutes after the hour on This Morning, here's Jennifer Koshenka. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan pressed Israeli leaders to shift from a reliance on airstrikes and ground assaults in Gaza toward targeting military operations and warned that a protracted conflict would make the Palestinian territory harder to govern after the war. Sullivan's meetings with Israeli political and military leaders Thursday seem to have made little headway addressing the growing rift between the U.S. and Israel over civilian casualties. President Biden would like to see the Israelis begin to wrap up the conflict. I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives, not stop going after Hamas, but be more careful. U.S. officials have said privately the U.S. wants to see the fight end in weeks, not months. Number two. More than two-thirds of the House has voted in favor of a defense policy bill that includes a record $886 billion in annual military spending and authorizes aid for Ukraine. Meanwhile, Senate negotiators and the Biden administration are still racing to wrap up a border security compromise to unlock money for Ukraine. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina on Fox. He's the commander-in-chief, and here's what I believe. Without Republicans put pressure on him, he wouldn't do a damn thing to repair a broken border. Given the threat level, to me, that's just insane and irresponsible. The Senate plan to come back next week in hopes of passing aid for Ukraine, Israel, and other national security and finalizing a deal to place new restrictions on asylum claims at the border. But the House shows no sign of returning to push the legislation through. 
Number three. The Supreme Court has declined to put on hold a new Illinois law that would ban high-power semi-automatic weapons like the one used in the mass killing of seven people at a 2022 parade in a Chicago suburb. The justices did not comment in refusing an emergency appeal from a gun rights group and others. Six of the jerseys Lionel Messi wore during the World Cup run last year have been auctioned off at a jaw-dropping price. The shirts Messi wore through the run, including the one he wore when Argentina won the final, sold for $7.8 million at Sotheby's. The group of jerseys falls shy of the all-time record set by the auction house behind Michael Jordan's 1998 NBA Finals jersey, which went for $10.1 million. <laughs> About what they roughly retail for in some of the stores these days, by the way. How many Lionel Messi jerseys right. do you have? Uh, we got a couple in my house. Okay. None for me, but Not Brendan certainly has a couple. All right. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for joining us. Welcome into Friday. In a time of year when many people start looking for a job to start the new year off on the right foot, it's important to know that it won't be just your resume that will land you the gig. Career expert Julie Bauke is here to discuss the intangibles that leave an impression on the hiring manager. We know her as Julie on the job. Julie, help us out. Hiring is a very unscientific process. If we could, if we could plug somebody into something and it would come out with an answer that said, yes, great hire or no, bad hire, everybody would do it. But because it's humans making decisions about other humans, it is always going to be really tricky. And put on top of that, that the interviewer doesn't isn't generally well-trained or knows what they're looking for. And so interviewers often rely on gut feel. What are some of the things that um, this candidate did that spoke to me mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things that really impressed me? And so it's so subjective and messy. So let's start out with the understanding that you can't be all things to all people. You could go to a company and interview there with person A and person B. Person A might love you, person B not so much. Yeah. That's just, it's because our our pickers are often broken when it comes to filling roles. And so we might decide, so, so you look at it this way, okay, can this person do the job? That, that's number one. And that generally gets down to, do they have the skills and experience to do kind of the mechanics of yeah. the job? And we can generally, as long as someone's being fairly honest on their resume, we can generally tell, do they have the on-paper qualifications? Okay, so that's generally what gets you in the door. Then, once you start interviewing, you start getting face-to-face with a human-to-human, that's when the gut feel stuff starts coming into play. And that's when, so there's, can you do the job? And then the next one is, can you do the job here? And that gets to culture. In other words, is the way that you have handled yourself throughout the process, from the beginning of our conversations about you potentially working here, all the way through the decision-making process, how have you behaved? How have you conducted yourself? What, ac- what actions and behaviors have you exhibited or not? Mm-hmm. Speaking with Julie Bauke, career Sorry. strategist known as Julie on the job, and we're talking about intangibles during the job interview. Um, so what about sending that? Should that be a, a handwritten note, your follow-up? Should it no. be, a, is an email acceptable? Is a text email okay? Is, yes. No, I wouldn't text. I would say an email is, um, I would say an email is the best right now. Um, I know that some people do send handwritten notes, but with so many people working from home and working remotely, where do you send it to? Um, with email, you also have the val- the value of it's it's quicker. 
says, as long as you're professional, dear so-and-so, you know, thank you so much for your time today. I've been thinking about my background as it relates to this position. And, you know, I think here are the three things that I think uh, qualify me for this position. Here are the three things I think that I could bring to the table immediately. I look forward to, if you have any other questions, please let me know. I look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks, Julie. Julie Bauke, career expert known as Julie on the job. Don't forget, by the way, you can follow us on social media. On Facebook and X, it's at This Morning Show. On Instagram, we're at This Morning with Gordon Deal. You can follow me separately at Gordon Deal. Did you know traditional bed sheets harbor as much bacteria as a toilet seat? The germs in your sheets can cause acne, allergies, stuffy noses, and other gross ailments. Fears, though, that you can put to bed with Miracle-Made bed sheets. Miracle-Made uses silver-infused fabrics inspired by NASA that are thermoregulating to keep you at a perfect temperature all night. Miracle-Made is self-cleaning, self-cooling, luxurious, eco-friendly bedding designed to protect your skin for more restorative rest. My wife and I love them. Now, my listeners can have a clean night's sleep while saving over 40% and sleep cool all summer and warm all winter. The website, trymiracle.com slash Gordon. Claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% at checkout. Miracle-made products are backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, the website, trymiracle.com slash Gordon. trymiracle.com slash Gordon to save big. You can sleep cool, comfy, and clean. Miracle-made bedding, NASA-inspired for out-of-this-world comfort. Sleep clean with Miracle. This is America's First News, preparing you for the day ahead with headlines and in-depth analysis. This morning with Gordon Deal. Thanks for spending time with us. Welcome into Friday, December 15. Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka. Some of our top stories and headlines. The U.S. presses Israel to change tactics in Gaza to minimize civilian casualties. Hungary blocks a European Union aid package for Ukraine. The House passed the National Defense Authorization Act, which includes a 5% raise for troops and extension of a controversial foreign surveillance program. Financial and accounting firms have already begun recruiting interns for the summer of 2025. That's 18 months from now. Raiders beat the Chargers 63-21 to in Thursday night football. And the cheapest team to support in the NFL. We'll have that story in about 20 minutes. Police in major cities including Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and San Francisco have seen a rise in reports of hateful events, including hate crimes, after the October terror attack by Hamas on Israel. Jews are often on the receiving end, while reported attacks on Muslims are also on the rise. In-depth analysis from Aaron Aylworth, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Aaron, what's the latest? Oh, gosh. Well, according to preliminary data that we um, looked at from major cities, it looks like there's been a rise in reports of hateful events. That includes hate crimes since the October 7th attack and then the resulting military campaign. So, you know, just... Just seeing a lot of these um, incidents being reported in a number of places, including Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, as well as smaller communities around the country. And these are reported ones, right? There are, it's, it's expected, many uh, unreported incidents. That's right. One of the experts that I talked to, actually, uh, you know, several people told us that often the official statistics only give you a partial picture. And that's because a lot of incidents go unreported. You know, the, these incidents typically target people from 
already marginalized communities, and many of them are unlikely to go to police. We're speaking with Erin Aylworth, New York City reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Her story is called Hate Crimes in U.S. Increase Amid Israel-Hamas War. Uh, Also, hate crimes versus hate incidents. Can you explain that? Well, you know, different cities track track these instances in different ways. So some, you know, some call them hate crimes. But hate crimes is a, it's essentially a technical term, right? Something has to be designated and ruled as a hate crime. So a lot of times you can have a, a hateful incident that doesn't necessarily rise to the technical level of hate crime. Now, a lot of these things are still being investigated. That's why these um, statistics are preliminary. But authorities have uh, have been looking at them as you know, potential hate crimes. All right. So you, you focused on uh, New York, L.A., Chicago, San Francisco's in the mix. Officials there broadly are saying what, Erin? Well, we actually um, we actually surveyed like the top 25 largest cities. Uh, we got responses back from a few and, you know, and, and took a look at those statistics. And what we found, what we found was that, that numbers are going up and we were able to call out, you know, several instances. I mean, gosh, it, you know, in New York, for instance, I get, um, I get emails from NYPD that sort of track, you know, what they've been handling day to day, not just on hate crimes, but they're, I started noticing that that I was seeing more of these things coming through into my email. In fact, I got one this morning, you know, detailing uh, an attack. So do experts here suggest that these types of crimes will continue as long as Israel and Hamas are at war? So what we heard from our, our experts that we chatted with was that you often see surges around big events like um, like conflict in the Middle East, but that you can also get them seasonally around things like holidays, around something like, you know, Pride Week. But there's this one expert that I talked to, Brian Levin. He's at the, um, he's the founder of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino. And he was telling me that, you know, in his opinion, it looks like there's there's essentially a what he called a tectonic shift happening with hate crime, where it seems like we are unfortunately, as a society, getting more tolerant of hate, and so you're seeing these these surges, and when they decrease, they're not going back down to the to the same level. That baseline is getting higher. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron Aylworth, New York City reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Last year's holiday travel headaches were primarily results of Southwest Airlines and its major system meltdown. The airline canceled nearly 17,000 flights over a 10-day period in December. But this year, Southwest says it's prepared. Insight from Nathan Diller, travel reporter at USA Today. Nathan, set this up. Sure. So uh, last year we saw... uh a chaotic season for for Southwest around the holidays, to say the least. Um, Travelers got stranded in airports. They canceled nearly 17,000 flights over a 10-day period in December. And uh, it definitely, um, you know, left a a bad taste in the mouth of some travelers trying to get to their families over the holidays. So over the course of the past year now, anticipating this holiday season, Southwest has done what? 
Yeah, you know, they've uh, really tried to address some of the problems that uh, caused the issues last year. So uh, they've taken steps in multiple different areas, um, one being winter operations. They've invested in de-icing trucks and um, changing some workflow procedures so that flights operate more smoothly when it's snowing. Um, they've worked to make it easier for employees on different teams to work together when something goes wrong, um, thanks to more streamlined internal communications. And they've also spent uh, money to update their IT infrastructure. You, you, you referenced in the story how Southwest seemingly has built up some goodwill and customers seem to have recognized that, right? I, kind of explain what they've said or maybe what the customers have done. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we spoke with some uh, customers, my colleagues, um, Zach Wichter and Kathleen Wong and I, and um, some customers who even got stuck in airports last year have flown with Southwest again. Um, the company really made an effort to make goodwill gestures to passengers that were impacted by these cancellations and delays. They gave um, rapid rewards points, um, which is their membership program, to those customers to um, give them an opportunity to use towards future flights. And one of those passengers I spoke with who was trying to get to North Carolina for the holidays um, has actually flown with Southwest and it's gone pretty smoothly and um, said that he would probably fly Southwest again if he does decide to fly during the holidays this year. It's more a, a you know question of whether he wants to deal with the headache of flying around the holidays. But if, if he does, Southwest would probably be his choice. We're speaking with Nathan Diller, consumer travel reporter at USA Today. He and the team have a story called Southwest Airlines worked to avoid another meltdown this winter. Is it paying off? Uh, so just kind of, just kind of referencing the, the headline there. Is it paying off or is it just too soon to tell? Yeah, you know, it hasn't uh, negatively impacted bookings, uh, according to the company. They, they've said that they have higher booked load factors for the December holiday period this year, even than they did at the same point last year. Um, so they've said that that indicates that they're not experiencing uh, a rush of customers moving away to other airlines uh, because of the operational disruption last year. And you know what I didn't, I, I, I think I didn't realize till maybe last year, like um, how important it was to have like a crew in place at the different airports, right? I mean, that it was just a giant ripple effect when those cancellations started. Right, right. And, and crews work on uh, often multi-day trips. So when flights get canceled, that can cause definitely ripple effects through the employee schedule that lasts and lasts for days. What else uh, stood out as you guys were pulling this together? Anything else we need to mention? You know, I think it's just the, uh, the sense that despite the chaos of last year, um, people have, have, you know, stayed loyal to Southwest. Um, another passenger, my colleague Kathleen spoke with, who was stuck in uh, Hawaii, uh, has, has also flown with Southwest, and um, she used some of the rapid rewards points from um, last winter's disruption to surprise her daughter with a trip to Disney World for her birthday. And she said, uh, you know, that the negative memories from last year, the drama, uh, really created a, an opportunity for a great next trip. So, um, so folks are definitely um, willing to go back. Thanks, Nathan. Nathan Diller, travel reporter at USA Today. 
Dell's holiday event is one of their biggest sales of the year. Shop limited-time deals on laptops like the stylish, innovative XPS 13, engineered to do it all on the Intel Evo platform. Plus, save big on ultra-sharp monitors and top-brand accessories. The perfect time to upgrade any home, business, or gaming setup powered by Intel Core processors. Shop now at dell.com deals to take advantage of huge savings and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com deals. Glad you're with us. Don't forget, if you've missed anything, be sure to check out a podcast of today's show available every day on the This Morning with Gordon Deal app, plus wherever you get your podcasts. Nine minutes now in front of the hour on This Morning. Once again, here's Jennifer Koshenka. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. The U.N. National Security Advisor and the Palestinian President are set today to discuss post-war arrangements for Gaza, which could include reactivating Palestinian security forces driven out by Hamas in its 2007 takeover of the territory. Yesterday, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, spoke to Israeli leaders about a timetable for winding down the intense combat phase of the war. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. Still adhere to the promise and the vision of a two-state solution. Nothing's changed about our policy. I'll let the Israelis speak for themselves. We still believe, the president still believes, it's not only possible, it's in the best interest of the Israeli people. President Biden's administration has shown unease over Israel's failure to reduce civilian casualties. Number two. European Union leaders agreed to open membership talks with Ukraine in a move Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky hailed as a victory for his country. But Hungary vetoed a $55 billion financial package for Ukraine following failures by U.S. lawmakers to agree on a $60 billion aid package. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder says the stakes are high. Ultimately, uh, we will make, uh, as we have from the very beginning, we will make decisions based on a variety of factors to include uh, Ukraine's urgent battlefield needs as well as our own readiness. Number three. A New York appeals court has rejected former President Trump's challenge to a gag order and $15,000 in fines in a high-stakes civil fraud case that threatens to an estimated $250 million in damages and Trump's ability to do business in the state. New York trial judge Arthur Engeron imposed the speech restrictions after Trump and his lawyers made comments about the judge's principal law clerk. Downed wires, iced, defective trains, those things have all been responsible for holding up New Jersey Transit commuter trains, not a steer on the tracks. That's what happened yesterday when a wayward bull somehow got loose between Newark and New York City. Video of the brown bovine moving down the tracks went viral on social media. Thankfully, it all had a happy ending. Mike Stura is with the Skylands Animal Sanctuary. He says the cow will live in comfort. We'll be able to let him free. And he'll go with, uh, I think he'll go with a group of 13 others that I have, that 10 of them have horns. Um, And, uh, you know, hopefully he dies of old age in 20 years or so. It's believed the animal escaped from a slaughterhouse. That's that's not something I've seen on the treks in New Jersey. (laughs) That was hilarious. See the size of that thing? It was huge. With the horns and everything? Thank you, Jen. Thanks for being with us. Looking for a less expensive way to support an NFL team? Experts at Japan 101 analyzed each of the 32 franchises to find the average ticket prices of games this season, beer and hot dog prices at each home stadium, and jersey prices to determine the cheapest teams to support. The cheapest team you can support? The Houston Texans, with fans spending an average of just $379 for a ticket, beer, hot dog, and jersey at NRG Stadium. Tickets to see the Texans are the cheapest of all teams, costing an average of $230. 
It's the first facility, by the way, to have a retractable roof to function as an open-air sports and performance center. The second cheapest team to support is the Arizona Cardinals with an average of $413. On the other end of the scale, the Las Vegas Raiders, whose home stadium is Allegiant Stadium. Attending fans spend a whopping $1,318 on average. They're the most expensive to support, and that's not because they put up 63 points on the Chargers last night in Thursday Night Football. Also among the most expensive, Eagles, Chiefs, Lions, and Cowboys. That'll do it for this hour. For Jennifer Koshenka, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Morning, America's First News.